I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is journalist and author Tom Wilbur. His latest book is Vanishing Point, which takes readers back to the Oswego County home front in 1944, when a B-24 Liberator bomber known as Getaway Gertie vanished during a snowstorm. The plane and its crew have never been recovered. In his book, Tom takes us back to the night the Gertie was lost and traces the lives of the eight men who went down with her. He also takes us into the complicated world of searching for lost wrecks like this one. Tom, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here, Crystal. So when did you first hear about the getaway Gertie? And we'll talk about that name change that happened a little bit later. Let's go back 50 years ago to my family cottage on the shores of Lake Ontario in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the summers of my youth were spent beachcombing. And a little background on Lake Ontario, most of your listeners will probably know this is really more of an inland sea than a lake, uh, and it's part of an international seaway. It's a very large body of water. And we used to beachcomb and go barefoot along the shores and find out what would wash up on the beach. And our 10-year-old, 12-year-old imaginations, of course, would flesh out a lot of interesting stories. There were, in fact, old shipwrecks and other things in the lake. And one of the things that it started is a memory, actually, or a memory of a memory. I don't know exactly when it got in my mind, but there was a story of a lost World War II bomber in the lake. And uh, this seems somewhat far-fetched to me, but it was a like a ghost ship, a bomber with a crew of eight. Um, and it became part of the lore and legend of the beachfront. And uh, I've remembered this story and forgotten it many times over the years. But as a working journalist, many years later, I finally got a chance to look into it. And it was always one of those things as a writer, I thought, mm, this is an interesting story. What's behind this? Is there anything behind it? And you know how that goes. A lot of times there's rumors and legends and urban legends and there's nothing at all behind it. But decided to look into it and found out that uh, there was, in fact, a lost World War II bomber, a B-24 Liberator bomber. That's the big four-engine, um, magnificent plane. Uh, it's iconic of World War II. It was in the lake with a crew of eight, and it was lost in 1944. And then the next question became, how can that be that we, we, we see it on the news often with millions of dollars spent bringing home, recovering and bringing home the bodies of combat veterans in the Pacific and the Atlantic uh, and farmers' fields in, in Europe and the jungles of Vietnam. But there's eight crew members aboard a B-24 Liberator bomber somewhere in Lake Ontario that nobody really, there's barely a record of it and nobody knows about, let alone anybody trying to find it and recover it. So when did this become something that you wanted to write a book about? This, uh, it was always in the back of my mind as a journalist, but I started uh, researching this six years ago. And that's because I had a little time from the paper. Uh, I actually had written up 
previous book before that, uh, Under the Surface, um, about the gas rush, got into the more the book writing mode. And um, my publisher, Cornell University Press, was interested in this. So I pitched the story to my publisher. It was about six years ago. And uh, by that time, I had done enough research to find out that there was something behind this and uh, got very interested in the story then. Now, so this is a mystery that's, you know, nearly 80 years old. And as you've mentioned, it's been forgotten. There are a few remembrances that happen from time to time. But, you know, I certainly hadn't heard of this. And I was fascinated when the book crossed my desk. Where do you start researching a story like that? Because I, I did the initial Google search like I always do with a new topic. There's not much out there other than your book. I, I started in a couple places. One was old newspaper archives. And that is, it's much easier to get access to old newspaper archives through services you can get on the internet now. So I, mm-hmm. uh, th- there is a record of this or a certain kind of record on it among the Palladium Times in uh, Pulaski, the, the Syracuse newspapers, the Watertown Times, the, 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 the local or the regional upstate uh, newspapers. What was actually reported on this in 1944? Because um, there, there really is no, I mean, as many of your listeners will know, if you go up to many of the parks anywhere around here, around Confluence Park in, in the Binghamton area or, or up along the shores of Lake Ontario, there's all sorts of monuments and historical landmarks of this, that, or the other thing happening. But with this case, there's, there's nothing at all. So starting with the research is what was reported at the time, and then going through the uh, National Archives to find the actual accident reports. Um, trying to find the actual names of the crew members was a starting point. Uh, trying to find the family members of the crew members. So once I started with the newspaper accounts, that gave me the names of the crew members. And from there, I could go and start looking at the military records about this with their ID numbers and other things. And then finally, getting in touch with family members to try to flesh out the story. And I I don't want to get too far ahead of it here, but uh, one of the challenges with working with this was, as you know, building any type of nonfiction story is taking a bunch of facts and information and turning it into a narrative uh, that is meaningful to something bigger. So that really had to involve getting in touch with family members and what does all this mean? I mean, what are the bigger themes? One of the things that I really loved about this book, though, is that narrative that you did create. And, you know, the chapter in particular about the night that the Gertie went missing is so vivid. Tell us about writing that. Yeah, yeah. that was a lot of fun. It was very challenging. Um, I had to use a lot of contextual information uh, because there was so little to work with as a matter of record. But I did have the accident report, and I did have the best part of the accident report was a transcript of this radio communications. And back then, you didn't have a direct um ground to air radio communications where you had one central control room talking to all the airplanes. 
these airplanes would get in touch with these way stations and communication towers along the way. And then the communication towers would phone these to air traffic controllers or bases. So it was fairly indirect, but the transcript I got from Getaway Gertie was a back and forth with these radio towers for when communication with the plane as it was going through this weather system, took off from Western Massachusetts uh, and at uh, an air base there and with a group of other planes and eventually got caught up in this weather system and then radio communication started to fail. And I got a good sense of the where and when and the blow by blow. I knew how long it was in the air. Um, and then the rest of it is contextual information about uh, what was it like back in 1944 at uh, Westover Airfield in New England? What was it like in Oswego County on the home front in 1944? So it took a lot of the bigger picture things. And then the third component to it was figuring out exactly what I could about the specifics of the young men who were on the plane. Where were they from? What was their history? Uh, what type of background did they have? And there wasn't much available on that either. But with all those things working together, and then figuring out also what it was like to fly a B-24, what type of training exercise that they were doing, um, what were the specifics of this training exercise, what were the specifics of the weather. I was able to pretty much put together hour by hour, if not minute by minute, scenario of what this looked like from the time they took off to what it looked like when they were flying blindly through a snowstorm. Um, in upstate New York, uh, running low on gas, um, eight, nine, ten hours later. It seems so almost needlessly tragic that, you know, this, and, and I want to talk more about the deaths around training exercises in the United States during that time in particular in just a minute, but this was a training exercise. They, like you said, took off in Western Massachusetts. At one point, they're flying over Wilkes-Barre and headed north and eventually wound up in, in Ontario, and it's just, it seems sad that there wasn't more help, that there wasn't a way to get them on the ground, you know, that they had to die because of this, because of nothing, actually. Yeah, um, and that brings up the, the a bigger point throughout the book. Um, this, is, this is tragic, and it's preventable, certainly by today's standards. But back in 1944, uh, we were rushing to war after Pearl Harbor. Um, we were mobilizing this air force that is unlike anything that became that came before it. So this was the first time we really fought a war primarily or largely by air. And all the technology of developing the planes um, this plane specifically to do certain tasks, but the numbers, the sheer numbers that we were doing. So these were, you know, wing to wing combat formations um, that involved hundreds of planes, um, waves after waves of them. And they had to develop the planes and then they had to develop personnel to fly them. So remember in 1944, this was the age of flight was still relatively new. Most of the people who were flying these planes, mostly men but some women, um, 
were, when they grew up in the 1920s and 30s, like, I mean, that was shortly after Lindbergh had made his historic flight. Some of them might have, uh, and my pilot in particular, who was on Getaway Gertie, his name was Keith Ponder, he's from Mississippi, um, had some experience with the uh, early days of the biplanes and the barnstorming out in the country. And um, so flight was still relatively being developed. Radio communications were very primitive. So this is all to say that the risks that these men and women were taking uh, learning how to fly these planes in these ponderous formations, wing to wing, with little or no experience. The planes were just recently developed. Uh, the risks were off the charts compared to what we would tolerate now, and the tolerance of risk back then was much higher. The number of casualties that happened like this, and I guess that was the other part of my research, I thought this was this unique um, situation where this went down and everybody should know about it, but there were 15,000 airmen and some women who died stateside tra in stateside training accidents between 1941 and 1945, 15,000. So the, these eight crew members that got lost in Getaway Gertie are among 15,000 that died before they could even get to war, just training for it. I actually had a great uncle who died in a training accident uh, in the Midwest. And I always thought kind of the same thing. Oh, this must be a tragic anomaly. And then reading about that 15,000 number in your book was just kind of stunning. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, that I mean, I, I guess that's also indicative that maybe we don't, a lot of people don't know it, but this was two generations ago, um, that they probably did have family members that were involved in the war and possibly involved in some sort of stateside uh, tragedy, tragedy, but um, where in the Midwest, if I may ask, I I would have to do more research on it. Which actually, your book has inspired me to start digging into more of because I think like the families of some of these servicemen, it happened. There wasn't a lot of detail, and it was part of war, and you accepted it and moved on. And a lot of you know my family didn't really talk about it much anymore, like so many of the families of the airmen in your book. That is so true. So right there, uh, that gets to a broader point in the book where what I found with family members were many of them were not even aware that their ancestors died in training crashes. So that's certainly true with Getaway Gertie. When I finally got in touch with um, the family member related to the pilot, Wendell Keith Ponder, I found him in Ira, Texas. Um, and he vaguely remembered his great uncle Keith. And in fact, his middle name was Keith. He was named after the pilot, but he knew very little of the circumstances. And uh, he was delighted that I contacted him. And together, we started fleshing out some of the stories. So remember um, that many of these men, most of them actually, were young and single. They were 19, 18, 20, 21 years old. And so they don't have, there's, there's not this lineage, there's not a lot of uh, memory among their descendants because their descendants are once removed, their great nieces and nephews. So I think that's indicative of 
the institutional memory of all this happening is we don't have a lot of records of of our great aces and nephews. You know how it is when you might be digging through an old family member or family album and you come through two or three generations ago with great nieces or great uncles and great aunts and you think, hmm, who are these people or how are they related? I think a lot of your readers might relate to that. And especially from this era, you know, we're losing that generation very quickly at this point. Um, and I'm glad that because you were actually able to talk to to at least some of the people who were there that night. Tell us a little bit about some of the ground reports and the encounters that people had. Like as basically Gertie was circling, it sounded like a Swigo, um, very low right before it crashed. And some people actually saw the plane or heard the plane. Yeah, so this brings back uh, brings me back to the newspaper accounts, really, because that is the only uh, record that I have of these encounters, the people who heard the plane or saw the plane. And um, the local newspapers uh, were pretty much a papers of record then, and they would report these incidences of people experiencing various things. And from what we know with those newspaper reports is that the plane so it took off from uh, Westover, Massachusetts at 5.01 on February 17th, 1944. Uh, it was with six other planes. They were to do a quick formation flying uh, drill and then break and come back down. It was supposed to be a local flight. So the weather moved in. They didn't have great weather forecasts back then. And they got they never made the formation. They got enveloped in clouds. They, it was ill-advised that they went up to begin with, but they were behind schedule and they were trying to make their schedules, so they went for it, as they often did. Uh, and they got broken up. The other planes eventually wandered around. They went east over to Boston. They got scattered around. They got in the flight paths of other commercial flights. It was very chaotic, um, but they eventually got back to the base. Getaway Gertie and her crew headed west. They lost radio communica uh, communications. They got in. A, they homed in on a tower at Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, eventually, and it had the same frequency as their base tower. So they thought they were finally getting back to base, but it was just a way tower in in Wilkes-Barre. And Wilkes-Barre sent them, uh, of all places, after conferring with air traffic controllers in New York City, they sent them up to Syracuse. So we have a developing nor'easter, and uh, as your listeners will know, what happens in a developing nor'easter often in, in upstate New York, and especially around the Syracuse, Lake Ontario area, is you have these tremendous lake effect storms that happen off of that. They sent them up to Syracuse, and then um, they got lost in the in the storm. Uh, now the reports from the ground. Um, we know that there was a handful of people uh, in the Swigo area that were reporting this low-flying B-24 four-engine bomber several hundred feet off the ground coming over residential areas up there. And that was, back in the day, of course, there were a lot of aircraft training all over the place. But to have a B-24 100 feet off the ground buzzing the, the residents up there was pretty unnerving. So people reported that. And 
it was obviously looking for a place to land. There were other reports that came in around the Adirondacks of the plane flying around. These reports came in um, basically a day, the morning after uh, the plane was lost when it came out that the, that the plane was lost in the newspaper or the morning after that. So it was people that thought they heard the plane and they may have. I mean, it could have been flying over the Adirondacks, over Utica, over, over Lake Ontario, over Oswego. Um, and the initial search after that was based on these reports of people who thought they heard it. And it was mostly around the Adirondack area and because they didn't find anything at all in the flyovers of the lake. So they thought it went down in the Adirondacks. Do we know for certain that it went down in Lake Ontario? Yes. Uh, I would say, well, 99.9%. And that's because uh, one week after the plane was lost, a wing panel washed up. Um, and this was off of Oswego. And they finally recovered that. It was a fairly large operation. And when that wing panel washed up, they expected for sure that the, there would be a debris field after that. And this is the odd thing about it. Uh, the wing washed up on prevailing, prevailing westerly winds. Um, currents and winds generally come from west to east there. And they had calculated that it was, you know, based on how long it had been since the plane came down and when the swing panel came up, that there would be more debris and bodies would be recovered after that. But they never found another thing after that. So um, based on that, though, they believe it's in Lake Ontario. There are some seekers, people that look into these things and try to find them, which is another part of the story, by the way, mm -hmm. because this, this plane represents so many things to so many people. And, uh, you know, to some it's an unnecessary loss, to some it's an unrecovered un history, to some it's... Uh, you know, they, they project onto the plane this idea that they want to bring the boys home and give them a hometown burial. And then there's some that believe there's some sort of something funny about this. There's some conspiracy. There's some something that the government isn't telling us or people know about the plane or where the plane really ended up. And as I believe I say in the book, that myth flourishes in the absence of fact. And this whole mythological aspect of Gertie, which basically ex existed in this form for many years to many people because there's no real hard record unless you want to go to the National Archives and go through all the work that I did to to bring this to, to light. Before the book, at least, there was no real record of all these things. So do we know what this in the lake? I would say that evidence of the wing, which eventually was confirmed to be from Getaway Gertie, according to the military, would suggest that it had to be in the lake. There's a lot of other things in the lake, and there's a lot of other planes that went down, and the book gets into that a little bit. But I would say that 99.9% .9 uh, sure that it is in the lake somewhere. We're almost out of time. I wish I could talk about more of the other wreckages in the lake because that section of the book is really interesting too. But you, you were able to connect with some of the family members of the airmen who were lost. And I know that there are still people who are looking for the plane today, especially as technology is moving ahead leaps and bounds with, you know, drones and the underwater drones that you can look. Do the family members want the plane found? 
So this is a really interesting question. And first I'll say, uh, it gets back to that whole idea of what is the story other than uh, a bunch of unreported facts that are now reported? What is the story behind the story? What is the narrative? And the book tries to resolve some of this, but it's recovering the plane, but it's also recovering the memory. What does the memory mean? And what now if the plane is found? And there's other pieces to this that when people read the book, we'll see how some of these things connect with the family members. As I went back and, and tried to find out who they were and what their recollection was, and there's some twists and turns along, along the line. But there is some things that have happened since the book has come out, and that is that the federal agencies, two in particular, have become keenly interested in this plane all of a sudden after all these years. One is uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, who is, has plans to make a diving park out of eastern Lake Ontario because of all the things in the lake and many of the reasons it's a big part of the history. That's not just related to the plane. But if the plane is discovered in shallow water, does it become accessible? Uh, does it become an attraction? Does it become something that could be exploited? Uh, so there's that part of it. Then the other part that's just developing since the book came out is that the defense um, POW MIA accounting agency, that DPAA, that's a mouthful, but this is the agency that does recover combat bats from overseas, uh, combat deaths. So that's thus the MIA and the uh, POW aspect to it. The crew that went down on Gertie, they're not MIAs and they're not POWs and they're not combat deaths. So they normally would be off the radar screen of this agency. But now they are interested in finding and recovering the plane. And um, so I don't know if at that answers the question, but um, will do the do the families want this recovered? Part of it is, you know, that that story's been recovered. It can be a messy, complicated, expensive thing to recover any remains from a wreck that might be found in the sediments of the lake uh, almost 80 years later. And I think the sediment is that they can rest in peace there because it's a war grave. However, there's a complicating factor if they become, if they found and become accessible to recreational divers or other divers or people that want to collect things or exploit things then this is an, basically an open grave site, and that changes the dynamic a little bit. So that part is still being resolved. Well, we're gonna have to have you back on in the future to, to continue this, because this is such a fascinating story. Tom, thank you so much for talking with me. It was my pleasure, Crystal, thank you very much. Vanishing Point, the search for a B-24 bomber crew lost on the World War II home front is available now. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracas. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>